Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now for the main event, Greg Valier, Horizon Investments CIO, and Peter Hooper, uh, Deutsche Bank Chief Economist. Greg, the latest, Gary Cohn resigns. The uh, The conclusion of some market participants means that this is a shift of this administration towards protectionism. Is that your view, Greg? Absolutely, Jonathan. The, the free traders have lost. I think this means NAFTA is on thin ice. I think new sanctions against China are imminent. And maybe most intriguingly, there is an open rebellion among Republicans in Congress. Well, there's a vacuum in the White House now. And who's it going to be filled by, Greg? There's a vacancy that Cone leaves open. Do you see Peter Navarro stepping into the fold? Yes, I do. I think he has seduced Trump with his ideas on trade protectionism. And into that vacuum, I think we will see Navarro uh, also uh, Ross and some other people are protectionists as well. But this is a significant shift. Peter Hooper, how significant is this? Because for the past five days, we've been talking about it. And to some extent, the market has been fading the risk of this materializing. Do you need to rethink the potential that we are going to get the kind of things we feared a year ago? Uh, absolutely. You know, you know, I think it, there must be something else going on. Maybe the potentially good news out of North Korea. But uh, you know, there, there are several signs that are troubling here. Uh, Mr. Mr. Cohn's departure is certainly a serious one. Uh, but last week we had uh, the, a key Chinese figure, chi- figure from uh, leadership in China, in Washington, uh, Liu He, uh, destined to be the uh, vice premier and uh, certainly the, the czar of uh, economic policy in, in China. It was an opportunity to discuss. It was an opportunity to uh, negotiate. Uh, my, my team in, in China tell, tells me that uh, there, there is a willingness there to, uh, to, to, to begin to make progress uh, in, in areas where it's, it's, it's badly needed, uh, reducing China's restrictions on, on U.S. imports, et cetera. But uh, the, the view in China now is that this opportunity was not taken, that the, uh, the administration uh, uh, sort of dropped the ball or, or uh, did not want to uh, make progress in that yeah. direction. So it's, it's looking more confrontational, and that's, that's troubling. Uh, I, think, I think the departure of uh, a, a voice like uh, Cohn's in the administration, uh, you, you wonder – uh, where is where where are things going to go? What what kind of advice uh, is the president going to get here? Uh, is it going to be totally one sided in a direction that uh, does not bode well for for uh, global trade? Greg Valier, the perception on Wall Street is very very important. The perception was for for them this was the representative of individuals, investors, pro market forces, and the shape of Gary Cohn. Greg, as you look within the White House right now, who's left? Well, you've got Mnuchin. I think he lacks the gravitas, frankly, of uh, Cohn, but Mnuchin would be a moderating force. Some of the defense officials would be moderating forces. And maybe Jay Powell. I think uh, the new Fed chairman could also be a restraining 
force uh, telling the president yeah. that if we keep this up, if we get more and more sanctions, it just means inflation coming into this country. That's the last right. thing Powell wants. Yeah, but the money question, Greg, and you're very good at this in your research note, is the midterm elections a restraining force? Yep. Does the president, you know, he's so oblivious to so many things. Is he oblivious to the midterm elections? Maybe he's so short-sighted, Tom, that he was aiming at this uh, special house race outside of Pittsburgh next week, hoping that that could influence that race. But longer term, I don't think this is a good story for the Republicans in the fall. I think they're going to lose the House. Senate, they'll probably keep. But more instability, more uncertainty is not a good story for the party in power. Well, Greg, this raises the question, if we go into the midterms, what is the message that comes from the Republican Party? Because at the moment, it's certainly not coherent. The president is pushing for curbs against China. Paul Ryan, the leader of the House, is saying, no, thank you. So what is the overall message of the Republican Party going into the midterms on an issue as important as trade? I I think the message has to be the tax cuts have worked, the economy is good, unemployment is low. They've got to hope by Labor Day this economy is even stronger and they can credit the tax cuts. But you're right, on trade, when you've got Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan saying this is really a dumb idea and it adds to more voter confusion, that's not going to help the Republicans. Peter Hooper, how do you read what the overall message is from the Republican Party on such a key issue? Well, it, at this point, it's uh, clearly divided, um, and and uh, uh, one hopes that uh, the more rational uh, voices on on trade are going to win out. Um, but but uh, it's increasingly <clears throat> uncertain. But he's he's marginalized. Thank you, uh, Vice Chairman Clarida. At least I guess we've got something there. Like in state, Peter Hooper. He's marginalized the voice of the Peter Hoopers out there, hasn't he? Well, he, he, he's got a, a Kevin Hassett, a chairman of Fair, Jackson, University uh, of Pennsylvania. Who, who is a sound economist, a good economist, I think, um, uh, and, and hopefully uh, Fair. W- will be listened to uh, in, in such matters. Mal- David Malpass, ex-Bear Stearns, mm-hmm. uh, uh, providing some wisdom there as well. But but essentially, it's a White House, as John Farrell mentioned earlier, devoid of internationalists. Uh, increasingly so. Uh, I, I agree fully that uh, <clears throat> uh, the Fed is uh, going to be playing an increasingly important role here. Uh, certainly, if we go down the, the road of a uh, any kind of major trade disruption, um, uh, Fed policy is going to be going to become increasingly important. Uh, although they're. they're their ammunition is uh, to deal with a, a major downturn at this yeah. point is somewhat limited. Greg Vallier, we've had a couple of false alarms in markets over the last week as we've d- dived into the subject of protectionism. This morning, futures are down aggressively so by almost 1% on the S&P 500. <clears throat> you see that bid going into haven assets as well. What would your advice be to investors on a morning like this morning? And how do you get across that this morning is different and that things have changed? Well, I would probably say that we have to wait out the storm. The economic fundamentals are still solid. We could get a decent jobs report on Friday that could make people think about the next issue, that the economy is, is real hot. So I, I, I don't think this is the end of the world. What's the yeah. old French adage that the, the cemeteries are filled with important people? I mean, everyone's replaceable. I mean, Cohn was a, sort of a square peg in a round hole, a, a Democrat. Uh, he, he's replaceable. I think the fundamentals still will dominate in this market. 
Who would have thought that this position would be so important to the market? Can you imagine if an individual that filled this position several administrations ago had departed Tom Keane oh, well, and had this kind of effect on financial with, markets? With great respect to Mr. Sperling, Gene Sperling, good morning. You're right. But I think so much of this is, John, is not just one position, but as both Dr. Hooper and Mr. Yeah. Vellier suggest, it is a sequence of events, including completely as a backstory, the, the 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 news of Miss Conway yesterday, uh, with you know some kind of uh, Hatch Act violations. I mean, it, it's the aggregate of the these perception many of small the overall things. direction of this administration. Yeah. I think on a morning like today, Greg Valliere, it's been great to catch up with you, Horizon Investments CIO, and to Peter Hooper, our Deutsche Bank chief economist. Efforting Alfred Marshall, uh, seeing if he could come on the show today. Uh, that was challenging since he wrote most of his prime work, his classic work in 1890, 1900, and 1910. But we can do as well with the single best research note John and I saw yesterday, which was Stephen Englander. He is a giant in foreign exchange dynamics. And Stephen Englander yesterday wrote a tour de force must read for President Trump on the difference between tariffs working around price change and quotas working around quantity change. Here begins your lesson and the president's lesson today on trade responsiveness. Stephen, wonderful to have you uh, with us, please. Does the president want a tariff or a quota? I, I, I think he thinks he wants a tariff because everybody kind of knows what a tariff is. Um, in practice, it's going to turn out that he wants a quota and that American business wants a quota and even foreign business wants a quota. The the reason is this, that, <clears throat> with, a, that with, with a tariff, you can uh, foreign businesses can cut their prices yeah. once U.S. Businesses start raising their prices. That means that there's more, you know, the, the foreign producers can, you know, can creep back into the market. <clears throat> With a quota, there's more certainty. You, you kind of know you're going to take out 10% of the foreign right. supply into the market. Okay, so China goes after Harley-Davidson. And now, folks, for your partial differential Wednesday, here we go. Steve Englander, does Harley-Davidson want to sell fewer units to China? Or can they play with price and stay with tariffs? Which way does it cut for Harley-Davidson? You know, I think in practice they would say that they they want to sell as much as they can. In um, I mean, I'm sorry. In principle, they would say they want to sell as much as they can. In practice, they'll take margin over volume any day. You said something in this report that I thought was fascinating. The surprising part is that foreign producers win. How does that happen, Steve? Well, because the the objective is, you know, from a domestic producer perspective, is to get prices higher. But foreign producers are already more competitive by definition because they're selling and, and they have a big market share. So their profit margin with the quota gets augmented right. by the degree to which prices go up. So they do fine. And, and no. they cut out their least profitable exports and, and they don't care. John, I don't want to interrupt, but this is so crucial what Dr. Englander just said there, margin over volume. That is econo babble for labor gets killed. Yeah, that's really what that means. Just so we understand the partial differentials of margin, squeeze it over volume, which is a unit count. 
Steve, I, I want to fold in this kind of framework for thinking about trade dynamics into the FX market. And I want you to help me understand why over the last five days, EMFX has done absolutely nothing. I mean, if I told someone that this was the story of the last five days and perhaps they'd been on a beach and they came back and I said, here's the story. This is what's happened over the last five days. Guess what the peso did? And then I told them it did nothing. It was dead flat. Why, Steve? Look, I, I think the market is becoming uh, in, in, inured to this. Uh, if you think this is fire and thunder, like six months ago with, with Korea, and you look at what President Trump was, was saying yesterday. So I think this is just the market has become to believe that these opening salvos should be discounted, looked at with a grain of salt, and let's see how it plays out. So it's, I think that there's a fear of selling too fast because yeah. we've seen these overreactions, and it's been painful. Do you have to actually readdress that and have a different interpretation of it? Because in some people's minds, they wake up this morning and they say, Gary Cohn goes, that means, therefore, that tariffs or quotas, whatever they may be, but protectionist policies are more likely. Is that the equation that you've worked out this morning, Steve, or is it different for you? You know, I, th I think that some form of protectionist policies is going to come in. Um, I, I think... You know, it's likely to end up in quotas because every, almost everybody's happy foreign labor gets crushed, as you said. Um, you know, the question is really who replaces them. I, I think if it's somebody that's perceived as market friendly as, as Larry Kudlow and he's told, look, you know, suck it on trade, um, everything else is, you know, is going to be more market friendly, supply side friendly. I think the market will be able to deal with it and understand that it's, it's kind of a limited move that they're making in one dimension to fulfill very clear election promises that the president made back in 2016. And if it's Peter Navarro? I think that's harder because I, I think that the, you know, he's, he's known for his views on trade. He's not really known for his views on other economic issues. And the one thing that Gary Cohn brought mm -hmm. to the National Economic Council was the ability <clears throat> to administer and to push stuff through. And his managerial ability is very uncertain. Steve, we, we have to have a dollar call. And I, I will say with great respect for the great analysis of the last six days is there's a real ambiguity, almost a J-curvedness to take a, a, a trade idea to dollar strong or dollar weak. Forget about the J-curvedness. A year from now, two years from now, if the president affects these policies, what does it mean for the dollar? You know, I, I think that if, if he does it to the limited degree that I expect the, the, the end to be, I, I think the dollar will end up stronger because I think that the U.S. economy is better than, than people are giving it credit for and that the, um, you know, the U.S. economy will be fine. Um, I think, you know, if you're talking about six months, it's clear that, um, at least to me, that foreign central banks want to um, sell dollars and that there's downward dollar pressure. So I think that, you know, we're likely to see dollar weakness persist three months, six months, until it becomes clear that the U.S. economy is actually, you know, in, in, in pretty good shape. Steve, that's is, going it, to take a while. is it too much of a jump to say that we're witnessing a little bit of regime change? For a long, long time, in periods of risk aversion, it meant go and hide under a rock and buy the dollar. Now that's not the story. In periods of risk aversion, we see a weaker dollar. Why do we see that shifting dynamic, Steve? Well, because I, I think right now it's because the, 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 you know, the center of the controversy, the center of the issues that the market is focused on are, are U.S.-related and, and kind of dollar-related, right? If you think of it, the, you know, 
you know, they, now we are relying on foreigners to finance the uh, U.S. fiscal deficit, which is going up. The Fed yeah. is backing away from that, even selling. And I think it means we have to, you know, we, we have to induce them to come in. But that means by lowering the price of the, the assets that we're trying to sell them. And, and the weaker dollar is part of that mechanism. But, Steve, this, is, well, a, this yeah. is a huge change, just to jump in. For a long, long time, it meant go to dollar-denominated assets, not just the dollar, but treasuries, too. Are we witnessing a wholesale shift away from dollar assets in periods of risk aversion? Uh, I, mean, I don't think it's going to last forever. And if, if there was truly an economic catastrophe or a financial market catastrophe, say we had a shock that took the equity market back to 2200, I think that we would yeah. see the dollar once again be a safe haven, certainly against emerging yeah. markets, maybe not against the yen, possibly not against the euro, but against the yen yeah. for sure. Steve Engler, you are intertwined with McGill University in Canada. When you hear Christian Friedland speak with the heat that no doubt Mr. Trudeau feels as well, ultimately this is about Canada. How does Canada finally respond to the President of the United States? You know, I, I think that they're um, hoping that there's some deal possible, but I, I think it's, it's probably the case that they've given up hope on getting a NAFTA deal. And I think that the, the expectation is probably that they expect the U.S. to announce withdrawal, but not to take any measures to withdraw. So we're going to be in this twilight world. Um, there'll be a lot of uncertainty, and that's painful for the Canadian dollar. But I think that they're, they're you know, looking to plan B and, sort of, and, and kind of asking themselves, what, what do we fall back on? If they um, if they announce a pullback from NAFTA, but actually don't implement that pullback. <clears throat> Steve Engler, thank you so much. And we say good morning to John W. Galbraith up at McGill Economics as well, holding court at their wonderful and interesting economics department. Mr. Englander, Dr. Englander out of McGill and Yale. He's with Rafiki Capital Management and his research. John, his research note, every day there's like one note that comes over the transom. That yeah. You just stop and go. God, I hate Englander. I have to actually read this thing. Yes, that's, the way the uh, that's exactly. Was. Usually, you can get away with the first <clears throat> paragraph. Sometimes, yeah. someone's done. We call you that with, the surveillance with, with something skim. Something to read. Yeah, I'm also vulnerable to the yes, surveillance we are skim as well. Vulnerable to that. <laughs> it is good to have a few miles under the research pavement, and that would be Scott Mushkin out of Boston College, out of the University of Chicago, who has made a career, in a really good career, of consumer retail. And that means all the usual names and Amazon. He is with Wolf Research. And Scott, just to get it out of the way, you are beyond enthusiastic about a small cardboard box company named Amazon. How do you get out to $2,000 a share and I know you're going to extrapolate that forward from there. Why the overt optimism on Amazon? So, well, first of all, thanks for the, the kind introduction and, and for having me on. But I think the, the, the optimism on Amazon, especially uh, as the stock sector already climbed, it has to do with what they're doing in consumables, um, particularly fresh. And so we're seeing the company move aggressively into the $1.5 trillion market for consumables. Uh, and we think the hearts and minds of the consumer will be one in the fresh area. And of course, they bought Whole Foods, um, and they are quickly consolidating that under their uh, their umbrella. And it has a lot to do with trust. I and mean, when the consumer trusts you for fresh, 
Um, it has to do with frequency, and so we think the frequency increases a lot with Amazon if they get if the consumer to engage them uh, with their fresh purchases. Scott, let me just put it to you: uh, Sprouts uh, Farmers Market, as well as Kroger, are they going to go quietly into the night along with Walmart? Are they just going to cede this business to Amazon? Yeah, and Sprouts, I don't think, I, I, no, I think the answer is no. It's just, you know, small farmer's market style company with, which leads with fresh. So it's not that, you know, Amazon wins everybody. Um, but when you talk about the traditional supermarkets, we, we worry a lot about them. Um, we think Amazon's going to have 20% share of the consumables market. We called it Amazon 2028. Um, and that uh, they're going to suck a lot of share out of traditional supermarkets. And, and we, we're concerned. Obviously, Walmart is gearing up for kind of war and, and trying to uh, offset Amazon. But as the market leader in consumables at over, you know, well over to, a little over 20 share, I guess, uh, you know, there is concerns even on Walmart, uh, especially as Amazon is now moving towards. The thing about consumables is they, you know, they're much more uh, uh, egalitarian. In other words, everybody everybody eats. Um, and so as Amazon attacks the consumables market, they are attacking uh, the Walmart customer uh, more and more. So you think that Walmart is going to struggle competing against Amazon? I think everybody's going to struggle. I mean, we did an analysis, and so it's an, it's a, it's an example of one, but we were fortunate enough to be in an area where uh, we had Prime and then we had Prime Fresh. Um, and then and then they withdrew the fresh offering. So we analyzed, actually analyzed my own Prime account. And analyzing that Prime account was stunning. We, you saw the frequency as we engaged with fresh, the frequency went up, it went through the roof. Um, and then as they withdrew it, actually yeah. our frequency dro- dropped quite a bit and, and, and the number of purchases. So yeah. as Amazon moves into fresh and can get the consumer to engage, it's the same magic, by the way, that Sam Walton understood with the right. Supercenter. Scott, i, I got to inform you this. I know you've got too many children. All analysis of the Mushkin Prime household is affected by slime. Slime <laughs> is bought through Amazon Children spend hours on their parents' slime account getting up the uh-huh. order of like 15 things to buy, including gallons of Elmer's glue. That's completely moved the needle on slime. Pim, I, the slime, uh, slime alone, Pim, has changed Amazon's dynamics. Well, Scott, go ahead. Eventually those kids do grow up, right? What, are they exactly. all, what else yeah. are they going to buy from Amazon? Yeah. <laughs> it looks you think, well, Amazon is the the ultimate thing, and I'm going to quote the book is the everything store, uh, the everything store that uh, the ultimate combination of the culmination of the everything store runs right through, uh, right through consumables, uh, and we even think they get into pharmacy. Um, so uh, once they once the consumer engages, they kind of own you. They're going to own about probably about eighty five percent of your purchases. Yeah. What about the use of Alexa and uh, artificial intelligence in the home in order to propel Amazon forward? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, Alexa's, I think 70% of homes, 70% of the artificial intelligence of the home assistants are are Alexa's. Um, They're making it very easy to order. In fact, a lot of uh, uh, CPG companies are struggling with this a little bit. How do you advertise if Alexa is controlling the search? Um, and so Alexa is definitely going to be part of it. it. Makes it very easy to order stuff. 
I don't know if you guys have an Alexa, but it's extremely Alexa. You know, order me some Tide, and you know she'll go. She'll go and do it. I'm afraid to put it in the house. Yeah, well, just, that yeah, not not that. good for Tom because you know you never know what he'll show up on the door. Just uh, quickly, and I know we're coming back, uh, uh, Scott. Is can you ask Alexa how long investors are going to let a company that does 177 billion in in sales and revenue? How long investors are going to wait to move the profit needle on the company? I mean, profits are absolutely uh, a great discussion. We actually think profitability of Amazon is going to is going to move a, a lot higher over time. Again, in our analysis, Amazon 2028, they have enormous, enormous advantages. Um, yeah. You know, one advantage we were talking about is just the payments they get from from the vendors, from yeah. the likes of Kraft Heinz. Yeah, you know, you know what's great about this, Pim, and we can do this with Scott Mushkin. I mean, it really works. We're going to come back with Mr. Uh, Mushkin of Wolf Research and talk about this. When Scott was at Boston College, he had one of the original Alexas, and it'd be like, you know, Alexa, should I go to Marianne's tonight? You know, stuff like that. I mean, that's what it's, oh, it's a co- college kids use the thing every day. Can uh, does your dog? Can your dog order on him? He's training him. The dog has. Yeah. Okay. Scott Mushkin of Wolf Research. Without question, this is our interview of the day with a gentleman who, with Kurt Campbell. 12 years ago, coined a phrase, I'm going to suggest it became popular with Michael O'Hanlon, which is hard power. We talk about hard power. We talk about soft power. And unlike others, Michael O'Hanlon has consistently written about the linkage of military into our international relations. He's, of course, with Brookings. Michael, honored to have you with us today. What was your response to see two Koreans shaking hands the other day? Well, good morning. Nice to be with you. And thanks for your good memory on the book with Kurt Campbell. Uh, You know, I think we all have to be wary. The most likely explanation of what's happening is that North Korea has figured out that uh, the world was, you know, coming together against it. And uh, after its three long-range missile tests and nuclear tests in 2017, uh, the sanctions were really starting to kick in and I, I think still are kicking in. Uh, President Trump deserves some credit for that. And North Korea saw the writing on the wall that its economy was going to suffer. And not that North Korea or Kim Jong-un care that much about the well-being of their own people, but certainly Kim Jong-un cares about his own lifestyle, that of his elite, and that of his weapon scientists. So um, they are now trying a charm offensive to weaken the uh, international coalition that is applying this economic pressure and specifically aiming at China and South Korea. Uh, as their most likely target audiences that would like to believe that a happier, better relationship is easily within reach. And so to the extent they convey that uh, possibility, then then they potentially divide the U.S. from South Korea and China. That's the most likely explanation. I don't want to sound completely cynical, and we should explore this and hope that at least Kim Jong-un's not moving towards war. I mean, it could be worse. So, um, you know, and it's worth thinking of what kind of negotiating strategy and what kind of goals would be appropriate for us and try to take advantage of the moment. But I just think we have to be very, very cautious. We've spoken to James Stravitas about this, Admiral Stravitas, up at Tufts Fletcher School. And I think of your new book, The Future of Land Warfare. Are we deploying our military assets to the Pentagon, our military budget, rather, to the Pentagon in an even remotely efficient manner? Well, 
No, but, you know, by the standards of large organizations and by the standards of other militaries around the world, I think the Department of Defense does moderately well. I, I hesitate to just dump on the Pentagon and make it sound as if they completely waste the taxpayers' yeah. money, because I don't think that's the case. I think the quality of our deployed forces is still quite high, and I also don't think we want to breed a cynicism that the government has no idea what it's doing with the taxpayers' money. This Department of Defense is outstanding. Uh, on the other hand, you know, uh, I did my best effort last year at writing a book in terms of how I thought they could save, let's say, between 5 and 10 percent of their budget based on programs I thought were right. less than crucial or less than efficient. So it's in that range of that ballpark of magnitude that I would say the inefficiency resides. It's not it's not as if the Pentagon yeah. wastes half the money we give them, but they probably waste See, 5 to 10 percent. Tim, that's what's great about Michael Hanlon. You get a single point estimate on Pentagon waste. <laughs> Well, it may or may not be something that everybody else would agree with, but that's that's my ballpark figure. Uh, do you think the United States would have been better off if it had not invaded uh, Iraq? You know, it's pretty hard, even for those of us who ultimately were not opposed to that war. And I was sort of a conditional supporter. Um, and I, I, I said all through the debate, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. We should only do it as a last resort. But in the end, I don't claim that I opposed it. So I have to acknowledge that, you know, I've had to ask myself that question. I don't think there's a way to look at Iraq in 2018 and say definitively that it was worth it. What I'm hoping is that, let's say in 10 years, as Iraq has stabilized further, I hope by then, one can at least have an intelligent and you know interesting debate about the question you just posed. If you had to just to, you know end the debate today, you would have to say that no, the costs were greater than the benefits. That's my judgment. I, I don't I don't see how you could justify the war. Uh, based on where we are today. I'm still hopeful that Iraq can evolve to a place where it becomes part of the solution to the Middle East and not part of the problem. And at that future date, I will hope to be able to give a more nuanced answer to your question. So I'm not going to give up yet on hoping that someday this thing looks like it, it may have had some net benefit. But right now, I'd have to say it's had much higher costs than benefits. The reason I bring up the topic is because earlier today, we were listening to David Rubenstein of the Carlisle Group he was speaking with and interviewing Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and the Prime Minister focused on the threat of Iran. Is Iran the dominant force in Iraq today? Uh, Iran is the most influential external force. But the number one dynamic in Iraq that's problematic is internal Iraqi lack of cohesion and sectarian conflict. And that remains the number one problem. Now, Iran plays on that and exacerbates it, but Iran was not the original cause of it. And Iran is not by any means the only catalyst for that. And Iraqis themselves have to take ownership of the governance of their own country. They are, I think, proud and nationalistic enough that right now they are not handmaidens to Iran or its foreign policy goals. And therefore, to the extent Iraq sinks or swims, it's fundamentally and primarily determined by Iraqis themselves. Okay, to try to then connect this to North Korea, is there a template for denuclearization or nuclear containment that can be applied to North Korea? And can it be applied also to Iran? I think there are you know, two different cases, of course, because North Korea now probably has several dozen nuclear weapons, or perhaps as many as you know, 40, 50, 60. And uh, as far as we know, Iran does not have any. So in that sense, you have to take different approaches. I think that uh, North Korea at this point, realistically, no matter what it's been saying this week, is not likely to give up its nuclear weapons. They've spent yeah. decades developing that capability. And mm -hmm. I think what they're trying to do is, is to, again, be very cunning in their negotiating strategy. We should explore 
their willingness to give up uh, their nukes. But I think the more realistic near-term goal is going to be yeah. to cap that arsenal and to uh, have a verifiable uh, freeze on production and testing of nuclear and long-range yeah. missile capabilities. That's what I think we have to aim for. We, we can't give them too much for that deal. We have to, you know, recognize that that would not be our ultimate objective and could not be rewarded that generously. But I think that's the right interim goal. Headline just out from Ms. Sanders of the White House, tariffs on track to be signed by end of week. We've just seen that across the Bloomberg. Michael uh, Handel, just two more questions, if we could. One from me, one from Pim on Syria. What a mess. Everything I've read is it's a mess. What is the changed behavior we can do? to assist in the many Syrias, or are we just kidding ourselves? Uh, it's such a horrible situation, as we all know. Uh, you know, I think that in the short term, realistically, this kind of battle right now for the suburb of Damascus called East Gouda, it's unlikely that we have the leverage or the tools to do much about that, except to shame, uh, I hope, a little bit, the Russians into trying to restrain Assad President Assad, and at least trying to take some minimal steps to help people who are caught there in the crossfire. Realistically, over time, I think what you have to aim for is helping certain of the more remote areas of the country get on their own feet through improvised self-governance. We can help them directly in that process. What that means is sort of a de facto temporary um, soft partition of Syria. Uh, because Assad's not going to step down from power in any realistic time frame. And so I don't think that we should delude ourselves otherwise. We're going to have to just tolerate him in power for a while and work with those more remote areas like the Kurdish regions in the north and some of the Sunni-dominant areas in the, in the uh, south and east to try to help them get on their feet. And over time, I think we try to coax uh, Assad to hand over power to a different government, which he's probably going to choose yeah. himself. We just don't have the leverage to do this yeah. through a U.N. Uh, negotiation process. Michael Hanlon, thank you so much at Brookings. His latest work on NATO, among others, really can't say enough about diving into his Marshall papers, his research papers, and also his many books, including truly the classic Hard Power. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.